0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at CLTExam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Lou Marcos, professor in English at Houston Baptist University. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Opt in to the movement for education renewal. Register for the upcoming CLT on December 5th on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation.
1: Welcome back to Anchored, the podcast where we discuss and debate issues at the intersection of education and culture. Today's guest is Dr. Louis Marcos. Dr. Marcos is a professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University, where he teaches courses on British Romantic and Victorian poetry, the Greek and Roman classics, and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. He speaks widely for classical Christian schools and conferences, and has authored such books as From Achilles to Christ why Christians should read the pagan classics on the shoulders of hobbits, the road to virtue with Tolkien and Lewis and worldview guides to the Iliad odyssey and Aeneid. Dr. Marcos has a new book coming out, the myth made fact reading Greek and Roman mythology through Christian eyes. Dr. Marcos, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks so much. So to begin, can you tell our listeners a bit about your background and yourself?
2: I grew up like, like a lot of young people, I think, I read the Chronicles of Narnia as a kid, but did not know the sort of Christian background. And I went to Colgate University in upstate New York. I double majored in English and history, but my first love was English. I knew pretty early on I wanted to be an English professor, and I went on to University of Michigan. And I specialized there in Romantic and Victorian poetry. But since all four of my grandparents were born in Greece... I've always had a love for Greco-Roman things. but All along, C.S. Lewis was just sort of a passion and a personal love. But what happened was back in, let me see, back in about 2000, I did a lecture series for the teaching company, also known as the Great Courses. And I did something on literary criticism. And they liked it so much, they said, can you do another one? And I gave all these ideas that had already been done. And I finally said, well, I've always loved C.S. Lewis. They said, do it. So I spent the entire next summer taking notes, cross-referencing everything, kind of made myself into an expert. I did the lecture series. The lecture series turned into a cover article in Christianity Today, but I've also been very much a person in Christian apologetics. So apologetics and C.S. Lewis go together. About 10 or 15 years ago, my passion for classical Christian education took off. Right now, my son teaches grammar school Latin at the Geneva School of Bernie, Texas, and my daughter teaches uh, middle school music at Founders Classical Charter School up near Dallas in Louisville. So we are a classical Christian family, and that's why all my loves for the Greek and Romans and Lewis and Tolkien sort of all come together. I I would be a good person to take the classic learning test, I'll tell you, uh, Jeremy.
1: Okay, Dr. Marcos, in the past you've discussed that the humanities has over-specialized. Uh, Do you believe that a modern emphasis
2: on producing experts weakening the
1: humanities overall?
2: It is definitely doing that, Jeremy. And I I will tell you that almost all Christians, especially evangelicals, will tell you that C.S. Lewis is their role model. But he's actually a double role model for me. And one of the things that Lewis didn't just teach me this, Lewis liberated me to be a generalist and not just a specialist. I do have a specialty, British Romantic and Victorian. That's what I did, my my dissertation was on Wordsworth. But Lewis has been one of the people that has encouraged me that a true humanist, in the true sense of the word, a Christian humanist, needs to learn as much as he can about all different periods of literature, about history and philosophy and theology and music and art, if he has time as well. And I believe that we have made a big mistake in the humanities of overly specializing. We have pathetically wanted to be like the social sciences, and the social sciences have pathetically wanted to be like the sciences, and we've really given away our, our heritage. we sort of you know, sold it for a mess of pottage uh, like in, in the book of Genesis. And I think we need to return to the concept of the Renaissance man, of the public intellectual, of the G.K. Chesterton, who can write and discuss and make links and, and, and connections and synthesize things.
1: We often ask our professors here about their greatest classroom challenges. Uh, we had Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson, who I know you know well, on a few weeks ago, and she, she spoke about the idol of use, uh, that many students come to college believing that education serves only a practical or utilitarian purpose. Uh, philosopher Jen Frey also noted that many students are overly concerned just with external motivating factors. Uh, what do you find to be your biggest challenge in the classroom?
2: It really is. And this is why I love the homeschoolers and the classical Christian school kids. And I'll tell you why. Not only do they generally have a respect for the humanities, but just as importantly, their parents do their parents understand. You know, Jeremy, we live in, in, a, in an age where I'm trying to remember the statistic. Most people will change their career, not just their job, but their career three or four times in their life. And so if you have gone for a vocational education, when you change your career, you have truly wasted your education. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, and he said, friendship may not have any survival value, but it gives value to survival. I like to say that about the humanities. They may not have survival value in the vocational sense, but they give value to survival, value to everything. And I was just speaking to some prospective parents uh, at Houston Baptist University, and I told them just Google uh, businesses and liberal arts and you will find that businesses are hungry for liberal arts majors who have critical thinking skills, creative thinking skills, who can think outside of the box, One of my heroes was Cardinal Newman, John Henry Newman, and he wrote a book called The Idea of a University. And he said the real job of the liberal arts and what we call classical education is what liberal arts used to be. They're almost synonymous, right? We just have to be reminded of that. But he said the true role of the liberal arts is in a sense to make, ladies and gentlemen, to make people that can take up any post with honor and dignity and and skill as well, that they're flexible and they can move. And especially in a democracy like America, the liberal arts makes virtuous, morally self-regulating citizens. And so it is useful, but in a much higher sense.
1: I want to talk now about your book for a bit. And I'm assuming uh, this this title, The Myth Made Fact, I'm thinking about this famous conversation that really ended with Lewis's conversion, to, uh, first to theism and then to Christianity. Is that where the title comes from? It, it really did. See,
2: I, I, you know this, but m- almost everybody knows that Lewis was an atheist before he became a Christian. But most people think he went directly from one to the other, which is what Chuck Colson did, Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell. But as you mentioned, Jeremy, he became a theist before he became a Christian. And the thing that was holding him back is, like myself, he was a student of mythology, legend. He loved it. And he knew that the mythology of the world was filled with stories about dying and rising gods. And he couldn't get over that. And one day he was taking a walk along the grounds of Magdalen College, Oxford, Addison's Walk, it's called, around an old deer park. And everybody should go there. It's kind of a, a pilgrimage that any Lewis lover has to go to. And while they were talking, Lewis explained, I don't understand how the death of a, you know, a, a rabbi in Palestine 2,000 years ago has anything to do with me. I mean, OK, it's a beautiful story, but it's just the Hebrew version of the same myth that we see across antiquity. And that's when Tolkien said, Lewis, Jack, as he called him, what if the reason Jesus sounds like a myth is because he's the myth that came true? He's the myth that was made fact. And that was the galvanizing moment that moved Lewis from theism, a belief in God, to Christianity, a belief that Jesus was the son of God. And that's the title of my book, because I believe, Jeremy, I believe it's not only okay for Christians to read pagan mythology. I think it's a good thing and we can learn from it. And when I say learn from it, I don't just mean come up with cute sermon illustrations. I mean, we can learn real tidbits of goodness, truth, and beauty by reading mythology because even though God spoke directly only to the Jews, what we call special revelation, the prophets, the Bible, Christ himself, He spoke to all people through general revelation. He spoke through our conscience. He spoke through the creation. And he speaks as well through our imagination, through what C.S. Lewis called the good dreams of the pagans. Mm. And so a lot of truth comes to us. Now, thankfully, we have the Bible as our touchstone so we can measure those truths but there are real truths. And that's what I'm trying, I'm excavating, I'm mining, I'm retelling 50 Greek and Roman myths. And then I'm trying to say, what can we learn from them? And there's a bunch of questions in there. Uh, How can we wrestle with this and actually increase our faith by a direct wrestling with these myths that have been around for thousands of years?
1: This is beautiful. I I want to read a a quick excerpt from The Myth Made Fact. So you you state, reason over imagination has convinced large numbers of Christians to focus heavily on systematic theology and logic-based apologetics while shying away from those more aesthetic, imagination-based aspects of the faith that resist rigorous analysis. By doing so, they have cut themselves off from what I would boldly call the ministry of myth. Uh, Can you discuss the Ministry of Myth and why this idea compelled you to, to write the book?
2: Now, I think what I'm going to say is true for all generations, but I think it's particularly true for this generation. If we want to reach this generation, our first attack probably should not be science and logic and systematic theology. We need to get there eventually, Jeremy, okay? But if we want to make a connection, we have to offer the best story. This generation is desperate to be part of a story. Look at this insane, I mean, every other movie is, you know, Marvel or DC superheroes. Every other TV show is about that. And in fact, in some ways, the superhero has saved Hollywood. I don't know if Hollywood's going to survive COVID now, but uh, Mm -hmm. there's a desire To understand and to be a hero. What does it mean to be a hero? They want to know. And here's something that a lot of people don't know, Jeremy. Um, A lot of Christians, myself included, speak of the meta narrative. The meta narrative is the great overarching sacred drama that all other stories fit into. The ironic thing is, it wasn't the Christians that coined that, it was the postmodern relativists who coined it. And they coined it to tell us that there is no meta narrative. Yeah. And these kids may be taught that, but they don't believe it. They understand there's a greater story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and they want to be part of that. And I think one of the great connections, this ministry of myth, is to reach out to them and show them the story that we all have to seek after. You know, Jeremy, the existentialist taught us that existence precedes essence. What that means is, We're born as a blank slate. We have no meaning, no purpose, no essence. And as we go along, we make up our own meaning. Well, people may say they believe that, but nobody lives that way. Almost everybody I've ever met believes that they were born with a purpose and part of their job is to figure out what that purpose is, to figure out what their calling is and seek after that. And this generation is no different. I don't care how much relativism is thrown at them. Mm. They have a sense that they've got a purpose. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. So I know
1: some good friends that are diehard Louis Marcos fans. They love your work. And I've heard from a number of them that you have an incredible ability to sleep little, to have an incredible productive output, to read more books than most people read in a decade. When you're writing a book like this, did you ever have moments of writer's block? Were there any difficulties that they kind of stopped the process for you?
2: Well, I'll tell you what's so fun about this book, Jeremy. Myth Made Fact. When I wrote it originally, it was somewhere around fifty to 60,000 words. It had 50 myths, and then for each myth, I had a sort of Christian interpretation. And then I had a few other uh, things at the back. And I sent it out to Classical Academic Press, and they said, we love this, but we want it to be twice as long. Publishers never tell you that. Publishers say, I want it half as long. And so I basically wrote a second book, and it was a lot of work because – I'm not usually the type of person who writes like textbooks. And, and although this is not a textbook, it is a book, it can be used as a textbook again, because they really encouraged me to, you know, put, put the nose to the grindstone. And I have a section for every chapter now that's filled with questions and not, you know, yes or no questions, but real study questions to dig into. And it was a lot of work, but you know what I did, Jeremy? I don't even know if I told Class Light Life What I did is I kind of went through my head and I thought about all the speeches I've given over the last 10 or 15 years. And then I thought about all the Q and A that I've done with all my speeches. And that's where I actually drew on a lot of those questions. I try to remember what were the questions people asked after I finished my speech. And that kind of inspired me. So it was very challenging uh, to think, you know, maybe a little bit more strictly pedagogical and come up with questions that could be used by a book reading groups and, or even people that want to read it devotionally. And so that was a great challenge for me to, to dig down and try to offer as many ways of building on this for teachers and homeschool moms and everybody else. And it, was, it worked out well. I had a lot of help from Cap. They're, they're really uh, great. And they're giving such a push on this book like I've never had in all the books I've published. So it's been a lot of work, but it's been exciting. And when, when does it hit the press? November 23rd or so. So it's in time for Christmas gifts. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's a hardcover book with color illustrations inside. They've done all sorts of beautiful things. Like We decided to come up with a lot of notes, but the notes are done in different colors and things like that. It's just a beautifully laid out book. Uh, And so, yeah, it's coming soon. And what's really exciting, Jeremy, you probably know the classical academic press has this thing called classical university. It's one of those subscription things where you pay a monthly fee and you can watch all these videos. Well, they had me do an 18 part series. And everything's about 30 minutes. So it's about a nine hour series. And I'm not reading my book. I'm sort of redoing it in a more direct way in front of the camera, retelling the stories and all. And then also, I had put together a bunch of PowerPoints because I've taught classes for art students on Greek mythology and art. So I've put together PowerPoints of works from the uh, Middle Ages, Renaissance, Baroque, uh, uh, Rococo, neoclassical art that illustrates all these great things. And so that's going to be available as a supplement online. So it's really exciting and I can't wait till it comes out.
1: I want to go back to, to C.S. Lewis for a minute. And I, I really couldn't exaggerate enough or, or overstate uh, the influence Lewis had on my own life. I, I became a Christian when I was 18 through a ministry called Young Life and somebody gave okay. me a copy of Mere Christianity. And I think in those pages, I learned more than I did in you know, my, my entire you know, maybe 6th through 12th grade uh, education, Lewis absolutely transformed the way that I thought about the world. And then in seminary, I took an elective on Lewis, uh, and that was where I, I kind of got this deep desire to drink from the same well he had drank from in terms of um, the world that he was speaking out of.
2: I will, I will tell you, Jeremy, the more you know the great books, the canon, the more you will respect Lewis, not the less because Lewis has absorbed all of it. That's why I love every, at least every two years, I teach a class on the Chronicles of Narnia. And in teaching that class, I am enabled to talk about everything, not just Christianity, but Greece and Rome, uh, Norse mythology, uh, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance. It's all there in Lewis. And it's wonderful how people, just, just like you, Jeremy, they read Lewis and then they want to read those things that Lewis read. And that makes me even do it. And and I love medieval stuff, but i got to admit, even I'm bored by fairy queen. Uh, some medieval stuff is long and goes on forever. But at least I feel guilty for feeling that way because I love Lewis. And so I'll always give everything a second try. If Lewis says, read it, I read it.
1: Uh, question for you. We, we always ask our, our guests, and we like to conclude with this question. Uh, Dr. Marcus, has there been a, a single book, a single text that has influence you more than any other, that, that you would tell our readers that they've got to drop whatever else they're reading and read this today. It's just that good.
2: Well, I'll tell you, if you are interested at all in education of the young, then you need to read C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. Not an easy book. You need to read it slowly, but it is accessible. It's not like you just can't understand it. It's not full of notes in German and stuff like that. It is understandable, but you have to, you know, spend your time on it. But it is one of the most prophetic books Lewis wrote. He wrote 40, 50, 70 or 80 years ago, and yet it's even more true today. He shows what happens to an education system that throws out what Lewis called the Tao, the moral ethical code that throws out virtue, and that also throws out literature that turns the good, the true, and the beautiful all into relative things that are sort of anti-logic and anti-science. And so if you're gonna read one book Read that book and wrestle with it, and you'll understand the real danger uh, to education these days. And I go back and read it all the time. Powerful book.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Marcos, this has been a delight. Uh, Thank you for your time today.
2: Thank you. We've covered a lot, didn't we?
0: Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Join us next week when we'll be visited by Mr. Daniel Buck, freelance author and teacher. CLT. Reconnecting Knowledge and Virtue.